What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and on this episode, we're hitting a three-peat. Three episodes on death metal demigods, suffocation, but also three decades because 30 years ago, Suffocation's Roadrunner debut, the legendary Effigy of the Forgotten, was released, but we never forgot. October 22nd, 1991, this juggernaut was released, and we will effigize it today with Josh Barron of Suffocation's formation. Uh, station. Nation. This serves as a great conclusion to the Suffo Meet Meet trilogy that began with 95's Pierce From Within with vocalist Frank Mullen. Then 93's Breeding the Spawn with drummer Mike Smith. So definitely listen to those episodes if you haven't yet. But today, for the OGs, Josh Barron, who played on those iconic songs that introed Suffo to the world, is telling us about the beginnings of the band and the creation of this certified death metal zeitgeist. Josh begins our story with some unexpected praise from David Vincent, Evil D himself, of Morbid Angel. Two months later, reading an interview with with him in like Terrorizer magazine, you know, some, one of the bigger magazines, maybe uh, Metal Maniacs or some shit, and um, they're asking him about the tour, and they're like, "Did you get any good? Come across any good bands on the road?" He goes, "Well, to tell you the truth, most of them end up on the highway, okay. <laughs> like the tape that people right, right. He throws them out the window." And then he goes, "But once in a while, you get a real gem like Suffolk, and he mentioned us." And and our, our the demo, and then everything blew up from there. You know, yeah, that made that was huge when he when he mentioned us, and then from there, like met Matt Jacobson, uh, who's you know owned Relapse. He's living with his parents in I think like Aurora, Colorado, or something. He's like, hey, dude, you know, like I really dig your band, and I I got this label called Relapse, and and he had only done one one seven inch of this band called Velcro Overdose. I still remember the name because I thought that's a stupid fucking name, <laughs> you know, because it was like, and I was, I was full of death metal, you know, snob, you know. Velcro overdose sounds like my uh, closet from all the Reeboks. So that was all he had done. And I said, yeah, man, you know, but I, so I put it to the band. This guy wants us to do a seven inch, you know, we pay for the recording. I'll put it out, yada, yada. And it, we did, um, we went and recorded Human Waste. Like he freaked out. I sent him because it was, you know, obviously five tracks, which wouldn't fit on a seven inch. And he was like, 
changed, you know, he's like, we got to put the whole thing out. We'll do cassette, fuck a seven inch, you know, at that time I've already sent it to, I was a machine back then, man. I was fucking like promotion on the phone. I remember my mom used to get like thousand dollar phone bills and she'd fucking freak out because it was actually expensive to call, you know, like, yeah, I remember Murphy Brown being, or what was her name, right? Murphy Brown, when she would do those commercials where it was like a deal that it was only 10 cents a minute to call places. Like, can you Yeah, MCI. And I, I had been friendly with Roadrunner, with Monty, for a few years because um, a friend of this guy, Raz, we used to know, me, Frank, and Terrence, because we grew up together. Like, we lived by this Stony Brook University on Long Island. And, um, this guy Raz did the metal show at like Sunday nights at midnight or whatever. And we used to go down there and hang out with him, you know, before we even started the band. And he had, Frank had this van we used to call the fuck truck. It was like a luxury, like his parents were loaded. They were like his dad owned the law firm and it was called the cozy craft. It was like, that was the name on the side of the van. And Raz was having a fucking contest or having people, we were there and he was, started saying, you know, on air, like, yeah, um, Sepultura was coming for the first time. And um, for, I think, yeah, well, it would have been beneath their names. They had never been to America. Even the, the recording, they, they didn't actually go to Morrisound. Scott did it. They sent it up, you know. So they'd, they'd never been to America. I heard him saying that on air, and I was like, like, if anyone has a van or something that could fit the band, you can pick them up at the airport. And we were fucking, I mean... They were our gods at that moment in time. Sepultura, you know, when Beneath the Remains came out, it was just like, this is fucking the best thing I've ever heard, you know? I mean, because it was a great time in music because there was there was nothing, everything that was coming out, you know, you had Slayer, Dark Angel, Creator, and Destruction were huge for us, you know? But they had been out for a few years. But then, you know, everything after that, like, Roadrunner bands, for instance, and earache bands were just like next level, you know, the good ones. And, um, yeah. So, you know, he did his little thing and then played a song when he put the music back on. I was like, Raz, we'll fucking get him. We got, Frank's got the van, you know? And he's like, Oh, you guys want to do it? And I'm like, yeah. So we did it. It was fucking awesome, man. We went, picked him up at the airport, hung out with him for like two weeks. And you know, that's where I met Monty. It was weird. It was kind of like, in some offshoot way were representing them in a little bit because we were hanging out with them and when they need they didn't speak English at all and then they needed to talk to the label it was like you know or needed anything they would send it to me or so I got pretty friendly with there's a roadrunner and we hadn't even started the band yet but at least suffocation music I mean they had a band called mortuary you know before it was suffocation it was kind of like the same eight to 10 of us going in and out. But it was always like Terrence and Doug, like they, they were from a different area. From, but once the two areas hooked up and they became this band Mortuary and um, I was jamming with this other dude and Terrence and it was all like inbred kind of. And eventually it, it ended up um, me, me and Frank asking Terrence to come play because this guy Todd German who was playing guitar he just wasn't he was a real nice dude he just wasn't very good I guess at the time um, and 
Guy, was, oh, no, sorry, it was Guy. It was Guy and Todd. You know, you know, Guy is. So, so Guy was actually in the band before Terrence and Cerrito and Mike. So he actually is, is an original, original member. I had this drummer from school jamming with us. He was into like the fucking cock rock, you know, total shit. Incredible drummer, man. He was just insane. And um, there was no blast back then. This is before, you know, maybe Cryptic Slaughter was doing some shitty sloppy version of it, you know, or Napalm Death a little bit. But like, you know, we used to call it the Cryptic Speed. It's just crazy. It blows my mind, like looking back on it, how, how everything worked out. And, you know, so yeah, then I started sending the Human Waste tracks before it was actually Human Waste. And I was relentless. I'd bug the fucking crap out of people, man. Like, you know, like, like Roadrunner. And man, as soon as everyone got that, I had a contract from every fucking label. Like, like Roadrunner, Century Media, Nuclear Blast, especially those two. Nuclear Blast, Century Media. Well, it's not especially a contract, but there's no such thing. But just they were really fucking, like Nuclear Blast in particular. Well, and Century Media, but they were like really, they were sending me boxes of fucking picture discs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and two a week, man. Like trying to, you know, outdo each other. And you didn't have like, like any long-term deal with Relapse where any of these labels could just pick no, you up? No, re- re- Relapse, this is the thing. Relapse was a fucking joke. You know, as far as the label, they were just Matt in his, in his parents' house. Friendly with Roadrunner and from uh, meeting with right. Sepultura, but also you're just in general, labels are seeking you guys out. You're, you got a, a lot of uh, heat surrounding you at the time. So what is it that made you go with Roadrunner? Well, everyone but, everyone but Roadrunner. Okay. They were like the last ones to come on board. Because they were, and Monty and... Um, uh, psycho Mark Abramson you know my more of my age and we used to go to Milwaukee Metal Fest together guys in Immolation and who, you know whoever from New York would jump in the van it was pretty cool Riffing Corpse so yeah I knew them really well so I you know I talked to them every day and they would give me fucking everything before it came out that was that was a big thing back then like getting the advanced copy of fucking you know <laughs> of the obituary album or, or whatever it was and Dude, you can't give this to anyone, man. I was talking to them every day, and they were the label that we wanted, yeah. It got to the point where we had, you know, once they saw everyone sending us contracts, I'm talking to Monty, he calls me one day, and that wasn't odd, and we were just chatting, and he he said something about signing um, someone, and he goes, and uh, there's someone else who we're we're gonna sign as well, and I was like, oh yeah, who's that? He's like, well, and then he you know, started fucking around, you know, and it, it was us. But but I think he knew how badly, you know, and we were idiots, man. I was an idiot because had I fucking had, a, you know, if I wasn't so starstruck and, you know, about being on the band, the, the label that had the most, you know, the one with most of my favorite bands that was most respected in the industry for the music, which is Roadrunner, I would have went with one of the smaller labels and been like a big force on the small label instead of the little, the little fish in the big pond, you know, because they did, you know, two albums after I, you know, after they kicked me out, one of them was the best that reading the spawn was like my, like a gift from God that they fucking put that piece of shit out right after, <laughs> you know? And, and it, I mean, the fucking songs are amazing, 
but like, you know, and that was Monty, you know, and that was a perfect example of where they, they're then without me, you know, the decisions that were made. Cause I would, that would have never fucking happened. Monty was trying to tell me when effigy, like, oh, dude, don't go to Morristown, man. Everyone's going to Morristown. It's like, yeah, there's a reason, dude, because no one else can fucking mix anything like this. And he's like, and I was like, I don't care if everyone goes there. I want us to have that sound. It has nothing to do with, like, they were all about, you know, the original, just, just, just do your own thing. And it was like, look how that worked for you. Scott Burns Morrisound does a lot of Roadrunner albums at this time. So was that something that you guys requested or somewhere that they kind of sent you? But it seems like you... No, we, yeah, we were like Morrisound. That's where we, we want to go. You know, that's what I was. I was like, that was, that was where we're going to record. You know, there was maybe uh, Colin Richardson was the only other one, maybe. And he was in England. And I don't think Roadrunner was prepared to cough that much money up. I think they spent about 35, 40 grand on, on Effigy. Well, that would have been a, Total. a interesting thing, Colin like, Richardson producing Suffocation. We'll be back after a quick break. If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt-country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. Yeah, I probably would have been great. I mean, I, he's better than Scott, I think, you know, in the end. Better guitar sound, better drum sound. I don't know, though, at that time he was, because he got better, you know, at doing it, that kind of music. Yeah, of course. Um, when I think of Colin Richardson, I don't think of anything from 1991. I'm thinking of Fear Factory and Machine Head, you know, the right. mid-90s. And that was all, yeah, that was exactly, that was, that was a little bit after us. I know you kind of mentioned it, but around this time, I mean, even probably when you're talking about these tours, but definitely in 91 when Effigy comes out, you guys are all like really young, right? Yeah, well, I was, I'm born in 70, so I was, well, I was in autopsy for a while when Effigy came out, so I was way gone out of the band by the time it came out. Um, so yeah, I think I was, I was 20, you know, when it came out, but it was 19 or so when we did it. And you wrote a lot of the, the lyrics for the album too, right? Yeah, yeah, most of them. I mean, I have, well, you know, two thirds, I'd say. Yeah, and here's what happened. Here's a good. I fucking spent time. I took pride in the lyrics that I wrote. Yeah, they were shit, but at the time, I was trying to, you know, it was important to me that it said something, and it was very anti-religion, like still am, you know, just that. Um, and so that's what most of the lyrics are about. And I try to do it, at least the lyrics that I wrote, and I try to do it in a way that was for 19, 18, 19-year-old 19 perspective was intelligent. I don't know how, you know, in hindsight. But so, but that wouldn't matter because I wrote the lyrics, give them to Frank, and never think anything of it. So then Monty's like, it comes time for get the credits ready for the album, which obviously fell on my shoulders because no one, had, I did everything. No one did a fucking thing. That's how I fell into that role. And it, it found that it was a natural thing for me. Like I was good at it. I could, I'm the shit kicker. I could be the shit kicker. I, when I yell when I need to yell and 
which I think had a little bit to do with maybe why I was, I was expendable because I was only the bass player and I was pain. I was a right pain in the ass. You know, I, I know that I was fucking a dick sometimes, you know, because I took it really seriously, sometimes too seriously. Someone has to do that in a band. If, if you're going to be a good band, I mean, there's no way you cannot have someone looking after that, all that stuff. So I wrote all these lyrics and, and I thought they were pretty good. Give them to Frank and then I give Monty the credits. And about two days later, he calls me up in a fucking panic, man. He's like, dude, he's like, have you fucking read these lyrics along to the music? And I'm like, well, no, I haven't actually. <laughs> and never did. But, you know, so he was handed the lyrics two years ago. I practiced for most of those songs or about, about a year and like just let him go and you can't fucking tell what he's saying, you know, like I just know what I wrote, you know, and all the lyrics are fucked, man, completely fucked. So Monty fucking rewrote them. Well, didn't rewrite them, but he, the parts that were fucked, he just, he did it himself. The fucking A&R guy at the label, he like made the lyrics match up with what it sounded like Frank was saying, which completely destroyed all of our lyrics that people took time doing. You mean he like transcribed it like from what he could hear? Yeah, he transcribed it from what he was hearing, yeah. Didn't match what, what my lyrics were or, or even some you know, lyrics that other people wrote. But Frank didn't write any of them. I think he might have wrote maybe one song on that, if any. Fucking write some lyrics. And he, he wrote pretty good lyrics, I thought. I, all of his songs are about killing his ex-wife. And I thought that was awesome. Oh, because okay. who, doesn't want, who doesn't want that, you know? It's not even suffocation anymore, you know? It's like it's parents who's, who is suffocation, but one man does not a van make, you know? Having said that, it wouldn't be suffocation if it was everybody and not parents. It's a little bit of both, I guess. I mean, Cerrito and him were the, the ones that wrote the songs, really. Um, with When I was in the band, I made sure I got my odd song in there, a couple songs, and if not, you know, full song, half a song, or riffs, just because I wrote stuff that I, that, that we liked. So yeah, that, that's really what it was. Like whoever wrote it and if it was good, you know, we all liked it. I mean, there's riffs on Pierce from within. And, um, even after that, that I fucking wrote there in, in the song Pierce from within that, that riff at the end of the song, I think it's Pierce from within a real slow riff. I wrote that. That used to be an instrumental called Crippled, Sick, and Starving that we had. I mean, it didn't... I, I wasn't saying... It was suffocation already. It was an instrumental, so, I mean, they didn't really steal it, but they didn't give me credit for it. I'm, I'm pierced. I mean, and these are people I grew up with that were like, you know, Terrence, like fifth you know, fourth grade, we were like, we started playing guitar the same, same Christmas, you know, we got, each got a guitar and I sucked and he was good <laughs> right away. <laughs> we were, we were brothers, you know, pretty much. And like, you know, he would just not pay his rent. And so I tell my son, no, uncle Terrence is going to come stay for a while. So we're going to take your bedroom and let him stay in it for free for a year and a half, because that was my role for the band when we got back together Mike Smith going, dude, you got to do it because 
you know, well, Mike, you, you don't have any kids and you have your, your whole house. I have a fucking two bedroom apartment. The whole thing with relapse as well, becoming relapse. I told you that nuclear blast was really ruining us, sending me boxes of merch and like, you know, really nice dudes, Michael and Marcus, the German dudes that own, own nuclear blast. Um, they were, you know, real friendly and fucking really loved the band. You know, they, they were genuinely like, come sign with us. We'll fucking put everything behind you, you know? And like dicks, we fucking, well, I, I, I would take the blame myself. You know, we went, to, we went to Roadrunner, but I felt really bad because I, I could tell how much they loved the band. And I knew we weren't going to sign with them because I knew that they were only a newer label and, and they loved human waste. They thought it was like the best thing. And so I was just sitting there one day and the light bulb, I had an epiphany, like, wait a second, Matt's got no distribution in Europe. They don't have any distribution in America. Maybe they could, and then that, that way they could put human waste out. You know, that, that was what, what my thinking was. So I mentioned it to uh, Matt and he was like, yeah, bro, you know, hook me up with them. And I mentioned it to those guys. And then he fucking became Nuclear Blast America from that, then on. Why don't you tell me about actually recording the album down at Morris Sound, you know, working with Scott, what you think Scott brought to the uh, album that maybe his absence would not have brought. And uh, just, oh, I mean, that must have been such a huge experience for you, being so young and recording at this studio yeah. a thousand miles from home. Yeah, it was fucking, it was incredible. It was like dream achieved at the time, you know. That was making it playing death metal, you know. You're doing your album on Roadrunner for Scott Burns, with Scott Burns. And um, he, was a t he was the nicest guy, you know. Like I, I had met him prior to that. I had gone down there to talk to him about the al doing the album once we signed. Because I went with I went with Mark with Psycho. We're online to, to go through the checkpoint, which is way before nine eleven and all that. And he said he had a bomb and the fucking SWAT team fucking like pummeled him and you know. <laughs> he told funny, them he but, had uh, a bomb. And it wasn't at a time where you probably could carry a gun on a plane, you know. Other than you had to go through a metal detector, but if you had like a Glock, you know, or something that's not metal. My my best friend was Frank Watkins. From obituary? Um, yeah. So from then till, you know, I lived in Florida after we, I got married. After autopsy for like three or four years, right? Fort Lauderdale where he lived in. But, I, you know, we were friends for years before that. And, and I used to do sound for obituary for fucking I don't know how many years. I, I, I actually stayed with him and Trevor when we were doing Effigy. Because they, li you know, lived in uh, Tampa. Frank's parents had a house. They had like a second a vacation home in Clearwater, and they the other the guys were all staying there. And I was just looking back on it, it was a weird like dynamic. Like they they the four of them stayed at, at that house, and I stayed with. There was always this little bit of a uh, division. I don't, I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to call it that because it wasn't that. It was just you know it wasn't like oh I got to get away from these guys, or, but you know I think what definitely happened was on their end was a little bit of that like. Like I was this other guy now, you know, a couple of weeks later, they kicked me out. The actual recording of the record, I mean, I, it was pretty standard. We just, you know, we went in and it, he was like a machine, you know, we recorded our tracks. And then once we got all the tracks recorded, he told us to stay home for like four days or something while he one by one edited the bass drums in because of the new sampling bit, the kicks. He sampled one of 
Mike's a good bass drum hit. You know, I had him just record him just hitting just bass drum a bunch of times and took, you know, what he thought was the best one and just pasted that on every bass drum hit. But you had to do it by hand. There was no plug-in or... So, yeah, it took him like four days to just, you know... And it was all done on two-inch tape. So he's like, fast forward, you know, record over the other bass drum. And next one, record, record. You know, you can imagine how many bass drum hits there are on a Suffocation album or any death metal album. And then everyone went home in that time to plot my fucking demise, I guess. And I stayed there and missed it. Actually, me and Terrence stayed there. But Terrence was, like I said, I was sober at that time. I didn't even drink, I don't think. No, I didn't because I never liked drinking. That's another thing I remember about Morrison is it was fucking just every day was like Dave Vincent coming. Chuck Chuck was coming every day, smoking weed with us, bringing us weed. Not me because I wasn't smoking, but bringing weed for them and it's like hanging out with us. And, you know, and, and also Monstrosity was in the B room recording their album, the Imperial Doom one, I think, the first, whatever the first one was called. His corpse around was singing. And that's why, the, that's why he did backups. Frank could back up some as Yeah, I was going to ask you that how uh, George became part of the uh, part of this album, but so they were just already there recording, and uh, you guys kind of hit it off and asked him to come over, and they did some some trading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I was friends with you know, they had like Jason from Cynic was playing guitar for him, and um, Lee, the drummer. Uh, Lee Harrison, he was my cousin's boyfriend. So, so my cousin is Robin. From she does merch for bands, and and, and she's in Gruesome, that band Gruesome. I just saw the other day she's like endorsed by BC Rich, and and when so, you're saying like, Chuck, knew, you're knew. saying Chuck Schuldner from Death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuck, Dave Vincent came up a couple times, and and that was that was really cool part about that, you know, especially getting to meet all the people that we did we didn't know. And so Terrence was, while well, me and Scott were mixing the, the record, Terrence was, you know, Terrence. He, he would be out there, you know, partying with all the people that were coming in and out. And so, yeah, I basically got left to mix the album, you know, and for sake of actual fact, I'll say me and Terrence were mixing the album. He was partying, you know, and pop his head in, you know, every, every so often. And, um, yeah, the other guys went home and then got back and then, yeah, and I, that was it. To go back to when I went down there to to have, I don't know what you would call it, a, a production. Like pre-production? Meeting, quote unquote. Yeah, like pre-production type. Just, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you why I actually went. I think they just offered Roadrunner. Like, why don't you go down there? And... I was like, okay, free trip. We stayed at Frank and Trevor's place from obituary. And then I, that's when I met Scott for the first time. Frank took me up, up to the studio, and uh, he was fucking cool, man. He was like, just had so many crazy stories of fist fights and napalm death and all that you know happening in front of him in the studio. And he was he just as soon as I met him, he was like, going on about these stories. Well, actually, I met him, and he took money out of the. They had like a little bunny tin at Morristown, I guess. Later on, I realized when we were there, we didn't have any money. We were like, we need money for food. You know, we'd tell Scott and he would just give us a hundred bucks each out of, out of that and then Bill Roadrunner, you know. And I guess that's why they had it. But he was buying Coke and he bought acid with it, you know, <laughs> while we were there. And, and so the first day I met him, we were 
doing lines of coke and he's just fucking spewing all these stories. And, and, and it, I just always remember him. I'll never forget. He's like, dude, man, don't, don't tell anyone. But, you know, when he's saying all this fucking shit about, he's not saying, he's just telling stories about what happened. But, you know, usually that's kind of privileged. Your engineer shouldn't be, you know, saying uh, it was fist fights. And I have a lot of stories like that, too, about that, because I've toured with DSI for 10 years. Those dudes like to beat each other up. Like from the beginning, just down to earth and friendly and didn't didn't think any bullshit about himself. He was just this dude that fucking he kind of, kind of he was a computer dude and he stumbled, I think, on doing what he was doing. Like got a job at, at a studio out of that being some computer dude and um yeah, learned how to do it and then I guess kind of inventive sound, sort of, even though Terry Gate was doing, like there are other guys doing it beforehand, like the kick drums all clicky and actually sounding like one instead of like human waste. There was like two, two different size coconuts as kick drums, you know, <laughs> you know, banging them with like a piece of wood. But yeah, so yeah, that, I mean, that, that was that with more sound, you know? Well, with how hands-on you were with the band, I know that of course, by the time the, uh, the album comes out, you're gone. But did you have anything to do with this Dan Seagrave cover that is on the record? Yeah, yeah. That, I, like the whole album was pretty much, from from my recollection, me and Monty and, you know, me and Dan, me and Scott, you know, like those dudes didn't do anything except show up, go smoke weed and drink and play. So, yeah, the, I, the concept and everything was mine for the cover. Can you tell I, me what the I, concept is supposed to be? Well, it was like it was like a, what it is like. It was like the, the civilization that was once, obviously, like there was, it was a city, and then um, you could see the buildings in the background. And I don't even remember actually, but what to call that machine on the front, like an alien or or it wasn't alien, but there was like some other being that came there and just was pretty much building on our ashes, and it got that way from religion, you know, from getting fooled by, you know, the people just believing this fucking bunch of bullshit that someone made up a couple thousand years ago to control people and was their downfall, you know? You know, it's not something you look at the cover and go, oh yeah, that's what I see in it. So I don't know, it doesn't really represent exactly what I just said, but that that's what, what it was meant to be. And then he added things like, which I thought were brilliant, like the dude getting his face ripped off, which is, you know, really small. You know, I won't take credit for the artwork at all, obviously. I didn't, you know, it was, I mean, when I, when he, I, I got that, like, FedEx to me um, from him, blown away, man. You know, I did not expect anything like that, you know, even though, you know, we had the basic concept. Um, Doug drew the logo, but it was me and him, he had the pen in his hand and actually drew it, but we, we came up with it. It was me and him sitting there for 12 hours trying to come up with something. Yeah. Are you familiar with the movie Wally? Yeah. Do you know that Wally kind the, of looks like the, the, the Disney version of Effigy of the Forgotten? Yeah. I, I never actually thought of that, but yeah, it didn't take but a second when you said it. To, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, you know, it's like he, he's, let's face it. That dude has, done some fucking duds man i mean he's done some the most brilliant covers at death metal you know 
but he's also done some fucking shit ones. And luckily we got one of the good ones, I think. One of the better ones. I was going to say probably the best one. Yeah, the artwork is definitely some of his best. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It it only takes structure. And, And, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Nah, I mean. So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? You mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. Look, 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 look. We all artists, man. We go. You feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie. Don't play with it. Take that shit seriously. So Liege of Inveracity, of course, is always heralded as like, you know, one of the original breakdowns. And uh Yeah, exactly. That riff. That's just an important thing, I think, to point out that that was, you know, that's such a common type of riff now and even kind of immediately after that became. But, you know, in 91, that wasn't a super... Uh, well-known or well-used technique, like style. Yeah, technique. Yeah, like, um, yeah. That I mean, to me, like for, for me, it was just that was fucking those dudes. Like I said, when they were uh, Ter- Terrence specifically and Chris, you know, Chris Basile from Pyrexia. Chris was probably doing it before I was, and uh, the reason that he ended up, funnily enough, just as a side note, the reason he ended up not doing it. Cause he was playing bass with mortuary and then he might beat him up at practice, <laughs> punched him in the face. Then, then, then I played bass with him after that. And then, you know, then me and Frank started suffocation and then kind of, so yeah, he, he was part of it. So, but him and Terrence wrote brilliant. And then Doug came along who was even better. I think both of them are brilliant, Doug and Terrence, but, and, and Basile, and he, they just all wrote at this time when, you had nothing to go on really except like Slayer and which you can definitely attach it to. But yeah, like those, those riffs that the fucking Leeds, I think it was just trying to be as heavy as possible. It's weird when people ask me questions about it. Cause it's like, it was just, there's not much to say. It's just what we, we were doing, you know, cause those dudes wrote such good shit. I like tried to, to keep up with them. You know, I would write, things like that I liked, I would tweak it and make it mine, you know, like mass obliteration, which is napalm death riff completely just taken off the harmony corruption. You know, there is definitely an element of, I don't know where it came from either because no, like you said, no one was doing it. They had a band when we were, they were a little bit older than we were. And they had a band called social disease and they were kind of like a carnivore SOD full distorted bass, but it's the most crushing heavy bass sound for like 1986. These dudes were so fucking heavy, man. And their sound, like if they, if they knew anything about what to do to get, to make a demo and try to get signed, they would, they would have been in a second. I mean, they would blew away every band from that time, but they would, no one knew who they were because they were just dudes from Long Island that, and like, so they, they taught us things like tuning down, you know, tuning the guitars down, which made it obviously, instantly made us 
what what we were playing was really good in the riffs, but now it was heavy, you know. Right, right. And it, like we, we didn't know, and then we didn't even use tuners until Morris sound. <laughs> Scott's like, "What do you guys tune to?" We're like, "Oh, Doug J." <laughs> you know, <laughs> Doug gives us an A, and we all tune to it. Whatever. He's like, "Yeah, but what does it tune to?" We're like, "What do you mean?" You know. Like we had no idea, and and he's like, no, and he's got strobe tuner there. It fucking looks like a fucking I love futuristic machine. Doug's A, he's yeah. just, Doug's A string. We just all use that. Yeah, <laughs> we all... yeah. He didn't even understand. What, that's what I thought. I was like, what do you tune to? What do you mean? What do you, what is the guitar tune to? Like Doug's A, because that's what we tune to. You know, usually it was like Doug would, you know, and that was our idea of consistency. You know, always have Doug give the A. It could be any note. We don't know what his guitar is tuned to. <laughs> right. And it probably was a different note at all times. I think, and then that's why we were tuned to C on the, on um, Effigy and then eventually C sharp. The song Infecting the Crips yep. is kind of like the, you know, the suffocation song. It's like the one song out of this album that's always made the set list. It's also the song that like other bands, they cover, you know. What do you think it is about that song that draws people to it that's so special? I think it's the heavy, slower riffs in it, you know? The na-na-na-na-na-na. I mean, that, that was all the stuff I really was about. Um, as, as much as, you know, I like the technical, fast riffs that I now like a lot more than I probably did back then. Um, and I see the, the genius in them. That, that's what I liked about it. That was one of one of my favorites for a long time, and it was always because of those, you know, the end, the whole end of the song, which wasn't slow, but I guess it was slow and it was fast, different times. But um, yeah, you know, it had that stupid fucking bass with the shovel. You know, people like that too, which is funny. You know, because I always fucking I always cringed at that when, you know, especially the shovel. That was me and Scott that sitting there going, it sounds empty, man, you know? He's like, well, I got, I got this, I got all the sound effects at that time were in a catalog of, of compact discs, which were new at the time as well. So he had this like room full of compact discs with the catalog, you know? You, you know, if you wanted a bell ringing, you can look it up, what, what disc it was and grab it and you can, the bell's ringing on, on it, you know? And yeah, so I was like, what about a shovel like digging a grave, man? That's that's evil. And <laughs> that's got evil. the shovel, that's so but sick. yeah, or whatever. Yeah, you know. You mentioned that the the album lyrically kind of has a theme throughout it for you personally, at least, about uh, kind of like religious stance. And the album, of course, ends with Jesus Wept, the shortest verse of the Bible, yeah. on eleven thirty-five. I don't know if you ever had to go to vacation bible school but that's what we learned now i'm, I'm a new york Jew, bro you're, you're, you're the bible school guy kids and stuff you know like i had to go to, i had to go to hebrew school you know every and everyone i knew fucking was jewish except for anyone suffocation wasn't but you know long island the whole long island jew thing does that song hold any special weight for you from a lyrical aspect or point of view or is well that... the title was from um hellraiser or something jesus Wet and Jesus wet, like the beginning of Hellraiser. If I'm not mistaken, like we all watched these few, you know, movies that were innovative movies, like 
Hellbound and Hellraiser and The Exorcist and the horror movies, and, and it was from one of those. From what I gather, and you know, maybe it wasn't your original vision or whatever, but it's yeah, someone yeah. dies and Jesus is weeping, so they come back to life, but they're still a piece of shit, and he's so he's crying. Yeah, about. that is that is exactly what it's about, man. You're right. You nailed it, man. Almost to the to the letter. What what it was about, um, especially the piece of shit part, you know. And it didn't didn't matter that Jesus had anything to do with it because it wasn't, you know. And that's weird that I, you know, that's that's being the young idiot, you know, being so anti-religion, and then writing a song where Jesus is real and brings someone back, <laughs> you know. But I don't think it was it was like you know Jesus is great and he can bring people back. It was just like probably i hope for my sake just a, a hypothetical situation you know like something kind of cool to write a song about like it's, it's, it's like reincarnation you know I, I came up with that that fucking genius one too yeah you get cremated and then they cremate you again you know <laughs> it's reincarnation no but you know it's like, well it's reincarnation but instead of being reincarnated they, they cremate you again genius <laughs> it's fucking it's like makes absolutely no sense, but cool song title, I guess. Especially for the time. I mean, it fits the the image. It fits the sound, the logo. I mean, it, it's a, uh, it's it's not goofy in the in this the world that you've created as being a death metal band and being suffocation specific. Which I think that was probably why we were snobby enough that we were a technical death metal band, you know. And which in, now you listen to some of the bands. And it's like they're insane. Well, yeah, but this stuff is still insane. It still holds up. I think that's why suffocation is held so highly is because it's still, it doesn't sound like it's from, musically, it doesn't sound like it's from the 90s. Maybe the recording yeah, the, sounds like it is or whatever, but, you know, the songs no, the themselves. Riffs, the riffs and stuff are, would still hold up today, and they, they definitely were ahead of their time. Absolutely. And that, that's, all, that's all Terrence and um, Doug, you know, they, they, were, they were insane. You know, they just could come up with that stuff. My favorite song on Effigy by far is Seeds of the Suffering. Yeah, that, that that's a killer song that never really my favorite was, was um habitual riffs in that were just that that was Doug. Seeds of the Suffering just has the most it feels like the most song you know, you were talking about earlier, a lot of these songs are kind of just parts that are together and even though the parts are sick, they don't uh have yeah, that cohesiveness. It's, not, it's just riffs slammed together. And that that's part that was actually on purpose. That that was like we don't want to have repeat the same things, you know, like why, why, if we have a good riff, we want to repeat it. <laughs> that, that, that's absurd. One thing I, I, I feel about that kind of music back then, and it's very narrow minded and very, I know for me, everything had to be technical and very snobby, you know, about other people's music and, but also very picky about the music we played, which was, I guess, a good thing because then hopefully we didn't make shit that sucked. We were like these dudes that all of a sudden came out of nowhere, and in a year we were on Roadrunner. I think they thought that we thought we were better or something because of that, or you know, you know how like people, I don't know, they, they resented us, you know, and, and treated us like we were not authentic or something. I, I thought we were fucking good, and I loved what I was doing, but that was it. I didn't think we were better than anyone, or we were just doing our thing, and um, and you know, the reason we got signed in a year is cause I was fucking right pain in the ass. Like I said, you know, I, I, I forced that to happen. 
you know, as far as that business end of it, you know, obviously they liked the recordings we made before and the labels and we were, you know, circumstances, the stars all aligned being that the, the, the big thing for a little while, you know, like the next big craze, you know, because Dave Vincent liked it, you know, and, and then people listened to it and, it, you know, it was actually pretty good. Yo, thanks so much to Josh for telling the tale of the tape. And if you love this era of suffocation, JB has a treat for you. Go to effigyoftheforgotten.bandcamp.com for an entire live set from the band's first reunion show back in 2003 at Maryland Death Fest. Sick. But that is the show. Like I said at the beginning, where there's other suffocation episodes, if you haven't heard those yet, definitely dive deep into them there's a guy from twisted on one of them and that's true and there's plenty of other episodes both in the archives and coming your way so please make sure to be subscribed to the show tell a friend about it so i can keep doing it because if if you're not here with me it it gets a little lonely go to apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review and follow the show on instagram at meep meep pod but that's enough homework for you for this week I'll be talking to you soon, but until then, I am Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meet, and yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye! <laughs>